Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Judith Berenger for a conversation about ancient Olympia. And in the conversation, we're going to focus in on predominantly the period of the 7th to 1st centuries BCE, BC. Dr. Berenger is Professor of Greek Art and Archaeology at the University of Edinburgh, based in Scotland. She's the author of numerous publications over her career, including authoring the book, Olympia, A Cultural History, which was published by Princeton University Press. And she joins us today from Berlin, Germany. Welcome to call, Judy. Welcome uh, to you, Andrew. Um, I'm sitting here in Berlin and we have a fine day here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And as I said to you um, prior to chatting, one of the uh, languages I would like to learn one day is German. So I, I, I had there's some envy over on this side that you get to have that kind of conversation uh, pretty much every day right now. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Dig it. Okay. So we're chatting about uh, Olympia in the ancient period. Can you um, contextually share... Uh, what uh, Olympia is or was as a place in Greece? Well, Olympia is located in the southern portion of the Greek mainland in the peninsula called the Peloponnese. And Olympia was an ancient sanctuary whose primary deity was the god Zeus, the head of the Olympian pantheon. But Olympia was more than uh, just a sanctuary. It also was the location of the Olympic Games, the foundation place of the Olympic Games, which according to ancient tradition, began in around 776 BC, although we think they're actually quite a bit older than that. Okay. Um, Olympia uh, was a place that was not only for religious activities or sporting activities, but was also a political center for uh, the meeting of people from all over the Mediterranean world, particularly politicians and statesmen who would come there um, to be seen and to see and to leave their mark at Olympia. Anyone who was anything in the ancient world wanted to go to Olympia and uh, make their mark there. So you mentioned that it was and let's let's clarify so present day it what when someone goes to olympia in uh present day greece what do they see they'll see remains of the ancient sanctuary it's a large site which is um in a valley and it's a flat site and this is something unusual if you if you've traveled in greece you'll know that most archaeological sites are up you have to climb but that's mm -hmm. not true at olympia uh, Olympia is a very flat site. It's lovely. It's surrounded by mountains and hills, um, and it's bordered on two sides by rivers. So it's a lovely spot. Um, and you'll see there a very large site filled with uh, ancient ruins from ancient Olympia. And ancient Olympia has a very, very long history. So you're looking at material from uh, the Greek period as well as the Roman period and early Christian period. And then there are two museums as well at the archeological site of Olympia. There is no big city near Olympia. There's a small town, uh, which is where the hotels and restaurants are. Okay. And in the ancient period, would it have been a city state 
or was it a place of uh, worship? Can you can you speak more about about that? It was not a polis. It was not a city state. It was an extra urban sanctuary, a sanctuary outside the city, and was controlled for most of its history by a polis some uh, kilometers to the north. And the name of the polis that controlled Olympia was Alis. And Alis controlled Olympia for most of its history. Um, and Alis, of course, uh, profited tremendously from this traffic at Olympia. And it seems that Alis may have had some of its administrative bodies um, operating at Olympia. That is, their boule or their council may have operated at Olympia. And um, so Olympia itself is not its own polis. It's not uh, a city per se. It's a sanctuary. And by sanctuary, I mean there's a sacred core to mm -hmm. the site where there's there was the most important thing, the altar, but also a number of religious structures and monuments. But then the peripheral area right around this sacred core was filled with buildings, auxiliary buildings designed to serve the sanctuary, for example, for housing or for the athletic games. There was a gymnasium, or as we would say in ancient Greece, a gymnasion, where the athletes came to practice before mm. the games took place. Was it ever believed to be inhabited in any way? Well, yes, there was habitation for sure. There had to be people there all the mm -hmm. time, at least a skeleton staff. If you think about the ancient Olympics, they took place once every four years. So what happens all the rest of the time, right? Um, so this was a religious sanctuary where there were uh, dozens of altars. There were several temples. Um, mm -hmm. And as I said, uh, Alice may have held their council meetings there. So a site of this nature needed to have a kind of skeleton staff on hand to maintain buildings, to maintain monuments. Worshippers could come at any time of the year. So there had to be people there to, for example, provide uh, votive offerings, objects that people could buy and give to the deity, or people would come and want to sacrifice to the god, and they would have to pay a priest to do this. So there had to be people there uh, uh, in charge of this kind of administration, and also to guard the site. So in this period, and perhaps it changes, um throughout the period, but who's thought, who's thought or what group of people are thought to have built the uh, structures and the statues that would have been or still uh, are today in uh, Olympia? Well, these were, these were Greek workmen and sculptors and architects. In some cases, we have the names okay. um, of uh, the architect, for example, of the large temple of Zeus at Olympia. We know his name from the ancient uh, travel writer Pausanias, who traveled to Olympia in the middle of the second century AD. So he's a, a Roman writer, although he wrote in Greek, in ancient Greek. And he was a travel writer who traveled all over Greece and uh, wrote down what he saw. So he uh, tells us about the temple of Zeus, and he says the architect was a guy called Libon of Aelus. So in this case, we have the name of the architect. He also gives us the names of sculptors who created works for the sanctuary, but even better testimony, more reliable testimony, comes from inscribed statue bases upon which the statues once stood. Most of these statues at Olympia were made of bronze, and the bronze statues were long ago melted down, so we don't have the statues anymore. 
but we had the inscribed stone bases upon which the statues stood, and the sculptors would sign their names on the bases. So we know the names of these sculptors, and many of them were extremely prominent sculptors whom we know from many, many other contexts. Are any oracles thought to have ever uh, presided in Olympia? This is a very good question, and the answer is yes. Um, when we think about oracles in the ancient world, um, we tend to think of Delphi, for example, where there was an oracle of Apollo, and this is the best known. But at Olympia, there was an oracle of Zeus, and the oracle's messages were read in the flames atop the ash altar to Zeus. And an ash altar is just what it sounds like, an altar made of ashes of the animal victims who were burned on this site. And over time, it's just like when you have a fireplace today, if you don't remove ashes from your fireplace over time, moisture and the accumulation of ashes creates a kind of pile that gets harder and harder and bigger and bigger. So when Pausanias visited uh, Olympia in the middle of the second century AD, this ash altar was so large that there were several stories and one could ascend this ash altar. Mm. Anyway, to come back to the oracle, mm -hmm. there were flames atop the ash oracle um, uh, ash altar, excuse me, and uh, priests would read the oracle in the flames. And this oracle seems to have been especially consulted upon military matters. Was it a uh, female oracle that, that's thought to believe? And I ask that because I know a bit more about the Delphi uh, oracle. Yeah, at Delphi, what we have is the, the oracle is embodied in the form of this priestess, the Pythia. Um, but at Olympia, we don't have a person, so there's no there's no uh, sex attached to the flames. So it's just the priests are reading what they see in the flames, and, mm. and we don't have somebody pronouncing the words of the god. They're simply re reading what they see, the messages from the god, mm. as opposed to the Pythia at Delphi, who, um, according to ancient sources, went into a kind of mantic state and would create would, would give utterances that were meant to be the god's words so she really embodied the oracle and so we don't have a body of an oracle at olympia it's a different thing yeah it's interesting hearing the the difference the differences between the two um so can you speak more about what's known about the religious practices then at uh olympia was it thought to be believed that the the, the uh, altar that you described there and the structure around it was it is it thought to be, to be believed that that was somewhat like a monastery where it was secluded and uh, it was restricted access to the public, or could uh, is it presumed that people showed up and they they gave you know they had votives and they they practiced prayer? Can you speak more about what's known about the religious practice on the site? Well, what we know is that people could come and did come uh, whenever. Uh, there were certain restrictions upon where you could go in a sanctuary, and this is generally true in, in ancient Greek religion. Mm -hmm. Not everybody could go into a temple all the time, for example. Um, but the presumption has, has always been, and in, in the case of Olympia, we have some good evidence for this, that one could come to the sanctuary um, uh, at any time, uh, so long as you yourself were pure and not polluted in some way. So pollution would be uh, for example, if you had committed a murder, you couldn't enter any sacred space in Greece if you had committed a murder. You could not enter the Agora in Athens, for example, if you had committed a murder. Um, and, and there are various prohibitions like this. But assuming that you're purified, you could um, come into the space 
and you could uh, uh, worship at various altars or you could make offerings at various altars or you could have an animal sacrificed uh, on your behalf and you would pay for this service. Um, and sometimes you bring your own animals, sometimes you would um, uh, buy an animal from the herds belonging to the sanctuary. Um, and so animal sacrifice is at the foundation of all Greek religion. It's the most fundamental thing that one can do. So this is a standard ritual. Um, and and um, at big festival times, of course, you would have many, many animals sacrificed and their size could be enormous. But for an average person, it would be a, a smaller animal usually. Um, uh, and, and one. Um, but you could also, of course, make offerings that were non-blood offerings. You could make offerings of anything, basically. Um, and we have um, thousands of offerings made of bronze, of terracotta, um, some, some iron, uh, some tin. Um, we know that at, um, at many sanctuaries, textiles were offered um, uh, various things. So there was all kinds of material that could be offered. And in, in some fundamental way, that you offer is more important than what you offer. Okay. And I want to go back um, uh, and ask a clarification about the size of it. So can you, is there um, perhaps in uh, acres or some kind of metric that most people would know, do we have any sense of how, how large it is? This is something I'm really bad at. And, um, no worries, no worries. <laughs> in terms of, of, of guesstimating sizes. But um, the question is actually difficult to answer because the boundaries of the altus um, are not certain. And so when you go there today, if, if I had to say, okay, you could walk the site, mm -hmm. you could walk a circle yeah, around yeah. the site, it would take you to walk a circle around the site and not stop not stop mm -hmm. and look at it, just to walk around mm -hmm. the site in, uh, in, in its basic core would take, I don't know, 40 minutes, an hour or something like this okay. to walk around. Um, it's not, it's not enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you, if you really want to look at things, um, it will take you a half day um, and to walk around the site. It's not huge geographically. And I'm talking now, when I make all these statements, I'm talking about the core of the site to the south of a hill called the Kronos Hill. But there is, in fact, now knowledge that the Altus, the most sacred part of the site, included Kronos Hill and is much, much larger than we ever knew. <clears throat> and so if you really want to see the whole site, you need a lot more time. There are sanctuaries that uh, you need to walk to, and it will take you 15 or 20 minutes to walk to. And that was part of the ancient sanctuary as well. Interesting. So is it thought that it was built on flat land because it wasn't a polis? Is that the main reason it wasn't inhabited by a city? Or is, or is there some other theory why? Or is it just for practical reasons that you had to set it up more on a flat land versus on a hill, on a hill or something like that? I think it, it arose from religious reasons. Um, the, <clears throat> the tradition is that the early cult was on this hill called the Kronos Hill. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just going to get some water yeah. here for a moment. Tradition says that the earliest cult was on this hill called the Kronos Hill, although, in fact, uh, relatively little has been found on that hill. And then the cult seems to have grown up around the base 
of this hill. And um, the, as I said, the earliest god that we can certainly say was worshipped at Olympia is Zeus. That's the earliest archaeological evidence that we have, and it's actually not so early. Um, but Zeus, that, that he might receive worship around a hill or a mountain, is not so uh, surprising because Zeus is the cloud gatherer, the weather god. And so um, in ancient Greece, you will find Zeus sanctuaries at the peaks of mountains all over uh, ancient Greece because the clouds gather at the top of mountains and bring rain. And Zeus was the weather god, the agricultural god. So Kronos Hill is not a big mountain, but that it might be up high is not so surprising. Um, I think one reason that, so that's a religious reason that might explain why people set up a sanctuary there, but why would anybody settle there? I think they settled there because this was the junction of two rivers. Mm. And this, for an agricultural uh, society, this was an essential thing. So the, uh, the Olympics, the, the, the sporting games, can you speak more about how the games uh, started? I can try to speak about how the game started. We don't actually know. Of course, we have yeah. a tradition that talks about the beginning of the games. Um, there are mythological traditions that say that Heracles, the son of Zeus, founded the games in his father's honor. There are other traditions that say that Zeus founded the games in honor of his own father, whose name is Kronos. I've mentioned it several times. Um, there is another tradition that says that the games were founded by the hero from Aelis, whose name is Pelops, right? So this explains how Aelis controls the site. Um, so we have these mythological traditions, but um, how did this begin? We think that the games began as kind of a local festival um, in which involved some kind of um, athletic sports. The earliest uh, attested athletic event that we know of for the Olympic Games is the simple foot race, one length. Um, and that, that was the kind of core event. Um, and from there, other things grew up, right? A double length of uh, a foot race and then augmenting uh, various events to that. Um, but um, the, the um, games, we, we know the date, the 776 figure, um, this year by extrapolating backwards from a source, a written source in the fourth century BC. So we don't have good evidence for the early, early development mm -hmm. of the games, but it seems like it was something local and then eventually spread and became regional and then became bigger and bigger over time until finally in its most developed form, it was Pan-Hellenic, meaning that Greeks from anywhere and everywhere in the Mediterranean could come and compete at the games, and only Greeks. Um, so there's a very famous story that um, Alexander I, not Alexander the Great, but Alexander I, who was from Macedonia also, wanted to compete in the games, but he had to prove his Greek lineage in order to do so. So he was able to prove some link back to the hero Heracles, and that enabled him to participate in the games. So the games begin small, and then they grow. And by the fourth century BC, we know that the number of spectators at the games 
was somewhere between 45 and 50,000 people. Hmm. And that the games lasted at that time, five days. So it was an enormous event. What year? Sorry, what year was that? That was in the fourth century BC. So we had attestations from both written sources and from archaeology. Yeah, and so when we're talking about the the, uh, games in the ancient period of time, uh, is it fine to use uh, Olympics? Should we be calling it Olympia games? I I notice notice the, um, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but in more contemporary terms, when you do a quick Google on the Olympic games, they say that it was started in like, and I could be slightly off, but like the 18th or 19th century. Do you know, do you understand that discrepancy? Yes, of course, yes. Those are the modern Olympics. And these were meant as a revival of the ancient Olympics. And they began, I think it's 1894 in Athens. And this was meant to revive uh, the ancient games. But um, this also has to do with kind of the birth of Greece as as an independent country away from breaking away from the Ottoman Empire. Um, so when we talk about the ancient Olympic games, we use the same term, the ancient Olympics. And this is what the ancients did as well. Um, these were the most prestigious athletic games in the ancient world. Okay. Um, so people competed. What's known about uh, why they competed and uh, what they may have received if they were victorious in the competitions? One of the most important things to understand about the ancient Olympic Games and actually ancient athletics in general is that ancient athletics did not begin and never were purely secular. They were religious. So the games were held in honor of a deity at at, uh, Olympia. Of course, this was Zeus. And in fact, there's some speculation that the very earliest foot race that I described a moment ago, actually the the competitors ran towards the altar of Zeus. They ran towards this location and that the God selects the winner of the race. Um, It's not just about athletic prowess. And so they were never purely secular. So why would anybody go and, and compete? Well, they did it because it was part of this religious festival. Um, but they also did it because they were striving for glory. And it's really quite simple because there were not monetary uh, rewards for a victory in the Olympic Games. It, the Olympic Games were one of four Pan-Hellenic crown games where the victors in these athletic events would receive crowns made of vegetation. In the case of Olympia, it was from olive branches. And that was, that was the tangible reward. The intangible reward, of course, was this glory of having won at the Olympics, having the gods select you. Um, there were no second and third kind of consolation prizes in antiquity. You won or you lost. And the winner was glorified, and if you lost, well, you lost. You were a loser. Um, And of course, when you win, or I should say when you won in antiquity, as is the case today, uh, the herald would announce your name to the crowd, and he would also announce your hometown. And athletes competed as individuals. They did not compete on teams. There were no polis or city teams. They were individuals who came. But their names were announced. And they were kind of anointed, uh, and I mean this in the loosest sense of the word, um, as, as um, extraordinary uh, athletic victors by winning in the Olympic Games. The intangible 
reward of the crown, of course, and, and of the glory. I should say that tangible reward of the crown and the intangible reward of the glory accrued um, uh, was complemented by uh, gifts that an athlete, a victorious athlete might receive in his hometown. So for example, we know that some victorious athletic competitors at Olympia received free food and board for the rest of their lives. Hmm. In some cases, they uh, were exempt from taxation for the duration of their lives. Um, some were heroized and received hero worship after their deaths. So this was really an extraordinary event. So this is what people strove for when they came to the Olympic Games as competitors. Interesting. And I want to clarify the comment about um, people uh, win based on ultimately a traditional god. Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but um, uh, approving of the victory. So is it that someone wins, let's say a foot race, and because they win, it's presumed that a, a traditional god is in favor of them? Or does some other step need to occur after they are victorious in the race? You know what I'm getting at? Uh, the, kind of, the kind of the distinction between the two. And I, I go to the Iliad, for, for instance, right? Because that comes up a lot in the Iliad where, um, you know, people... Uh, either win or lose in the battle, but they really believe it's based on uh, a trad traditional god approving, or in some cases actually um, so, like supporting them in actually uh, the, the, the battle itself. It's hard to answer the question because we don't have accounts telling us what Olympic victors thought about their own victories. We do know that certainly there was a tradition of creating a thank offering to the god if you won. And so, of course, it's, it's due to the God that you win. Um, does that make you more special in society? Well, the Olympic victory does. Does it mean that uh, you've been chosen by Zeus and that's what makes you more special in society? Hard to say, we don't have that kind of evidence. But we do know that at Olympia, there was one special privilege that was given to Olympic athletic victors. Um, and it really was an extraordinary privilege. And that was privilege to put up a bronze statue of themselves in the most sacred area of the site. Um, and according to the fifth century BC, there was an, a regulation introduced saying that these statues couldn't be over life size, which suggests that prior to that time, there must have been just stupendous monuments that people put up or they could have put up for them, their family could pay for it. Um, and I should add that that regulation was, we know, clearly regularly broken because we have the evidence for that. But these statues of the victors would stand in the most sacred part of the site, surrounded by images of the god Zeus and images of heroes, so that their images were part of this physical company of images of gods and heroes. And a visitor to Olympia would see the athlete among this group, yeah? And so that the athlete appears somehow exalted um, by this placement and by this kind of a monument. Okay. Yeah, I was laughing because I've, I've noticed that about certain statues. Uh, they get really big sometimes <laughs> of, of, of uh, past uh, people. Um, so it sounds like the statues were getting uh, a little bit out of control at some point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And also we know that over life size was a, a kind of size that was usually reserved for gods. Okay. Um, did women ever compete in the ancient Olympic Games? No. 
Um, in fact, uh, uh, married women were prohibited, according to Pausanias, from even watching male athletes. Um, uh, but there was another athletic event at Olympia, not the Olympic Games, but another athletic event in which women, or I should say girls, did compete. And they competed in foot races at a festival in honor of the goddess Hera. And this festival is called the Heraia. And we have testimony from this ancient author Pausanias about the Heraia. So um, this event, um, we don't know how old it is because Pausanias is our sole testimony, yeah? So we don't know if it existed earlier than his lifetime. Uh, but certainly in his lifetime, these there were various age classes of girls would run foot races in honor of Hera. And they too were allowed to put up images of themselves at the site. And they were overseen by a kind of college, colleges is, and I mean that not as an educational institution, but as a, gr a group of women, 16 married women would oversee these girls um, and this whole foot race business. And we don't know who the spectators were. We don't know if men could watch the girls. But what we do know is that married women could not watch the men compete in the Olympic Games. Unmarried women could, but not married women. Okay. You mentioned uh, Zeus several times. You mentioned Hera as another Olympian um, uh, god. Um, was there any other traditional gods that you feel is noteworthy that were worshipped in some way in Olympia during this period of time? Many, many, many. Okay. Pausanias describes to us over 60 altars at Olympia, and they were to various different figures, Artemis, Poseidon, the god Ares. Um, they were all worshipped here, and there were also heroes worshipped as well, including Heracles. Um, Pausanias mentions the earliest deities at the site were Gaia, the earth goddess, as well as Ilythuia, not a common name, but this is a childbirth goddess. Um, and then he mentions also Kronos and then Zeus. So many, many deities were worshipped there. Zeus becomes the chief deity, but there were many. Is it thought in this period that we're focusing on today, we're, we're going up to, for the, uh, the, the primary focus, up to the uh, first century BCE, BC, um, is it thought that in that seventh to first centuries that this uh, Olympia existed the whole, whole time and there was activity? Yes. There? Yes. Okay. Yes, and even and even later, so the very earliest worship uh, that we evidence of worship at Olympia that we have is from about the 11th century BC, okay. um, and that's not the earliest occupation. That's just the earliest evidence of worship. The earliest occupation is about 2500 BC, and Olympia was occupied uh, until somewhere around the late 8th century AD, early 9th century AD, when the site it was occupied uh, um, by Greeks, then Romans, and sometimes Greeks and Romans at the same time, then it was an early Christian site, and then Slavs came to the site. And it finally was covered over in silt, in meters of silt from flooding from the nearby Claudius River. And this had always been a problem at the site, this um, silting and flooding of this river. But it finally kind of took over the site in the ninth century AD. And then the site was only rediscovered uh, in the 18th century by an Englishman, Richard Chandler. Okay. And then 
men excavations began in the 19th century. Okay. I'm glad you brought up the dates because I was, so I'll, I'll ask the, the, the question. Um, how did Olympia change, if at all, uh, once the, the Romans, the Roman Empire, uh, once the Romans gained hegemony in that area? That's a very good question. Um, the site became a Roman site. So the Romans transformed one of the temples, for example, um, uh, and um, actually, I, I want to back out of that sentence. Aelis, the city that still operated Olympia, uh, rededicated one of the temples at Olympia to uh, the Emperor Augustus for the worship of Augustus. And so we get uh, what's called a Sebasteon, uh, a building for emperor worship. So we see that kind of transformation. They took another temple, and um, all the worship still happened there. It becomes something more like a museum. And we, in the middle of the second century AD, there's an enormous, enormous fountain constructed at Olympia. And this is important, right? Think about water. It's always going to be important. The Olympic Games, for example, took place in late July, early August. And mm. if you've been to Greece in the summer, you'll know that uh, getting enough water was always a problem and is always a problem. Um, they began, uh, the Romans began uh, creating dozens, hundreds more honorific statues, not military victory statues, not athletic victory statues, but honorific statues, honoring citizens for various benefactions to a community, for example. And we see a proliferation of these at the site. The same deities are worshipped, but now we have the addition of Augustus and the royal family, or I should say the imperial family. Um, and the other thing that, that the Romans really went into uh, in a big way at Olympia were bathhouses. Many, many bath complexes were constructed at Olympia along uh, the rivers and in the site. Um, so it became mm, a place to go. Um, and uh, there was housing as well. There was a dining pavilion that the Romans constructed. Mm. So the site transforms, it becomes ever bigger over time. And there's a kind of, mm, I wouldn't say a changed focus, but an additional aspect, this kind of, I wouldn't say spa atmosphere, but something like this, where people could come and stay and, and, and have you know this bath, society as well as worship at the site hmm. did the games continue during this uh period of time yes the games continued we think there's evidence that they may have continued into the early fifth century a.d in spite of the prohibition against pagan worship in 398 by the christian emperor theodosius hmm. he issued this decree but um that was about worship the games apparently continued on and um, uh, in, what, in what form, we're unsure. The last Olympic victor that's known to us, we have his name, uh, that's known to us is in the fourth century AD. But there's some okay. evidence that there was enough activity at the site, enough wells dug, enough uh, pottery and so forth, that signifies not just domestic use, but use for festival purposes. Okay, but it's not as clear evidentially why this first phase of the games stopped, I think you said in fourth AD? Yeah, the fourth century. Yeah. Well, um, the games seem to have gone on. 
it's 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 the worship that stops the it or, or supposedly stops um there's this official decree but you know this like a, a, any government can issue a law governing behavior but that doesn't mean that behavior changes so um the games and uh certainly went on without break to our knowledge we just have the last name but that doesn't mean that there weren't other victors we just don't have the evidence for it and worship may have also continued on there may have been priests and sacrifices to Zeus going on it was never as if the Christians came in and then there was no more pagan worship. It wasn't one or the other. These two things could exist side by side, did exist side by side in many societies for a very long period of time. So you've written a book on this this topic. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic. Is this a subject that you're still tackling and you know you got your teeth into or are you working on something new? Both. I mean, I, I'll never stop thinking <laughs> and writing about Olympia, but I am working on... Uh, several new things. One of the um, one of the big projects that's arisen from Olympia. There are actually two things. One is about logistics in Greek sanctuaries, about how do you feed and house forty five thousand to fifty thousand people, and you know the inevitable child's question: Where do they go to the bathroom? All of these things. This these kinds of logistics. How you run a sanctuary. This is one project. The other project also arose from Olympia, and that is about um, the very strong Western Greek presence at Olympia. And by that, I mean the Greeks who were uh, sent out in colonies to South Italy and Sicily. These Western Greeks um, uh, had a very strong tie to the site. And so the question uh, I'll be asking in this next project is about Western Greeks and their connections to sanctuaries further east. So uh, stay tuned. Sounds interesting. Um, and when you mentioned about the, the kind of the pragmatic uh, issues that occur, I, I've thought about that with battles sometimes. You, you read a lot about battles and you hear about battles, but what doesn't get written about or spoken about as much is how are these, all these soldiers being fed? How are they using the bathroom? And all these kind of pragmatic issues that are ancillary to the actual, uh, you know, the fighting itself. Yeah, this kind of day-to-day almost banal stuff, I think is extremely fascinating, right? You want to know, how do you manage these thousands of people? Um, and of course, it continues to pose a challenge if you think about things like big rock festivals or big religious festivals in India. Um, there has to be a way uh, to deal with this or you have chaos. And sometimes we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's great having you on the show, Judy. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Berenger wrote that's very germane to this conversation today is Olympia, A Cultural History. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Judy and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.